Again, we are working through the life of Christ in the, in the four Gospels, okay? And I um, just want to say uh, uh, one thing. We have been given by inspiration four Gospels, not the life of Christ, okay? Um, you'll probably never hear me teach a course or preach a sermon series on the life of Christ because putting it all together that way is not what's been inspired. What's been inspired is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, but the narrative of that is the narrative of a real life. That's why I keep putting these dates up here on the screen, because we can figure out literally exact dates of, of many of these events because of how it correlates with other things. And so um, I, I, this outline here of the, of the life of Christ I put it up with with calendar dates on it because it's real. This isn't something that we've made up. This isn't the Christ of faith. Uh, This is Jesus of history, who is the Christ who we have our faith in, and it's connected that way. But there's something important for us to recognize, and that is given what we do know about the full life of Christ, it's interesting to see why is it that, that Matthew presented the life of Christ highlighting five different teachings, Mark does something very different. Mark doesn't highlight the teaching of Christ. He's going to highlight the actions of Christ, and he's actually going to highlight even more the character interactions with Christ. You'll see that as we move through this. Um, But once again, because I want us to get the big picture before we get into the the details, I'm going to have you stand up, and we're going to review the life of Christ with some hand motions. Twelve hand motions in three sections, okay? Everybody stand up. Uh, It's a slow, rainy morning, and... uh, uh, that song was turned in back in Seattle. So maybe this is feeling a little Seattle. We're going to break out of Seattle here today. Um, and uh, the, the life of Christ, 12 different motions. Um, the preparation before he enters in his ministry, four things. We're going we're gonna to do this. Birth, baptism, temptation, and then teaching. Okay, everybody all together. One, two, three. Birth, baptism, temptation, teaching. Say it with your mouth too. Okay. In his ministry, there's three and a half years basically of his ministry. There's one year of obscurity, and we're going to do it this way. Then one year of popularity. He becomes very popular. Then once he becomes popular, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are then set up in opposition to him. During that entire time, he's training his disciples. Okay. So let's do all of those. Ready? Obscurity, popularity, opposition, training. Then when he makes it to Jerusalem, and this is what Mark focuses on. Mark takes um, the entire life of Jesus and packs it into eight chapters, and then he spends eight chapters on the very final week of Jesus. Um, And in that final week where we've been training, there's going to be a trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Okay, let's do all those together. Okay, ready? Going to be this trial, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Let's do it all together, okay? All 12 steps. Ready? All right, let's go. One, two, three. Birth, baptism, teaching. Stop. I get a C for leading today, okay? Do this one more time. One, two, three. Birth, baptism, temptation, teaching, obscurity, popularity, opposition, training, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Great, great, great. Now, the question becomes, why is it that Mark does what he is doing in his gospel? And he does some very different things. Matthew and Luke are very similar. Mark and John, very different. Mark, because of the brevity of it, 
only 16 chapters in Mark, and John, because his perspective is completely different. Um, one of the authors that I'm reading through all of this stuff uh, is Mark Strauss, and he says this about Mark's gospel. It is very fast-moving. Um, it, is, it is a rip-roaring story. It moves along because of his use of a particular word. I'm going to talk about it a little bit later. Um, it, he has a prominence of Galilee and Jesus' early ministry. He doesn't really do many of the trips back to Judea until we get to the very end. There's a strong emphasis on Jesus' authority, teaching, and his authority and teaching and his miracles. He doesn't really give a long set of his teaching, but after he does teach, he talks about how people respond to it and say he was, they were amazed and he taught with authority. Um, he highlights that. He emphasizes the challenge um, to Jesus by these evil forces. And, and it's really interesting. I'll talk about this again. The demons seem to be the only ones who clearly understand who he is and the nature of what he's going to do. They're almost comic relief through the book. Um, he's trying to help his disciples understand who he is and why he's doing what he's doing, and they don't understand it. I've often called Mark the gospel of the flat forehead because Jesus keeps looking around at the 12 and he keeps going, don't you get it? Meanwhile, the demons are screaming out, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. The, the, the demons get it very quickly. Uh, and Jesus is portrayed as Messiah and the Son of God. He goes on to say that he's also portrayed as the suffering Son of Man who will die as a sacrifice for atonement. Outsiders become insiders. Some outsiders become insiders. This is kind of a little hint of there's going to be um, non-Jewish people who are going to come into the kingdom. Um, he says that it's a negative portrait of the disciples, how not to follow Jesus. I actually think the disciples are a true portrait of how we follow Jesus. They struggle just like we struggle. I don't think he's trying to paint them in a bad light. I think he's trying to say they struggle to figure out how to follow Jesus just like we do. So they're, they're an example of real following Jesus. Um, there's a lengthy passion narrative and an emphasis on his death and there's a real brief closing. I'm going to have to talk about that at the end. Um, and, and I believe the gospel ends as kind of a cliffhanger. Daryl Box says this, Two key things are happening around the Jesus movement as we come into the 60s, which is likely end of the 60s, middle of the 50s when Mark is being written. There's increased tension for Jewish and Christian communities, as well as the aging of the original generation of Jesus followers. Both factors contribute to the move to record and not merely to pass on orally, Jesus' stories and teachings. Here's what's happening. Um, it has been 30 years or so since Christ was crucified. They've been telling these stories. Christ hasn't returned. He told them he was coming back. He hasn't returned for a, about 30 years now. Some of these original eyewitnesses are starting to pass away, and it seems like some of the disciples and the eyewitnesses are deciding, we need to write these things down. Now, Mark is not an eyewitness, but you'll see he's connected to Peter, and he's going to interview Peter, and he's going to get his information from Peter. So who composed Mark? Well, Mark got eyewitness accounts from Simon Peter. There's a strong possibility that Mark is the same person we know elsewhere as John Mark. His mother was prominent in the early church in Jerusalem, and he accompanied Barnabas, who was his cousin, and Paul on the first missionary journey before leaving. Uh, he left the trip early, and that infuriated Paul. He later reconciled with Paul and even ministered to Paul in prison. Mark was in Rome with Peter, and Peter called him my son. He's not one of the 12 disciples, but you can see he's very prominent. 
His, his mother was very influential in the Jerusalem church. Uh, she probably was some wealthy businesswoman and was probably a patron for some of these things. Uh, Mark had high connections with Barnabas, which led him to go on a missionary journey. But as a young man, he, he drug up and went back home. Uh, but eventually uh, was restored back into relationship with Paul, and he had a long relationship with Peter. Um, this relationship with Peter is highlighted by one of the early church fathers. His name is Papias, and Papias um, was a disciple of the apostle John. And in one of his writings, he says this, and the elder, that's what he calls the apostle John, used to say this, so the Apostle John used to say this, Mark in his capacity as Peter's interpreter wrote down accurately as many things as he recalled from memory, though not in an ordered form, um, the things either said or done by the Lord. For Mark neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him, but later, as I said, he heard and accompanied Peter. Papias, um, about a hundred years after the life of Christ, uh, and maybe 30 years after John had died, is saying, John told us that Mark wrote his gospel getting eyewitness accounts from Peter. So this is, it's the gospel of Mark, but it's probably from Peter's standpoint. It's really fascinating how he portrays Peter real honestly. Um, he, 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 he shows uh, Peter's difficulties, but also some of the really good things that he does. Who was Mark's original audience? It seems that Mark is in Rome when he wrote his gospel. He's likely there with Peter during the 60s when the church is facing intense persecution under Emperor Nero. Um, persecution is beginning uh, to, to really increase. You're going to see that a little bit more. Mark writes to persecuted Gentile Christians in and around Rome, although it seems that he, as well as other gospel writers, are aware that they will be read uh, um, by many others for years to come. Mark explains Jewish customs, he translates Aramaic expressions, and even translates some Greek expressions into Latin, which is what they spoke in Rome, Italy. They're speaking Latin there. And so how Mark is presenting all of this, the evidence seems to be he's in some Latin community, very likely Rome. We know he was in Rome later in his life. Mark wrote sometime in the 50s or perhaps the mid-60s when persecution of Christians is on the rise. In AD 64, after a major fire destroys much of Rome, Nero shifts the blame from himself to the Christians, resulting in trouble for the church. It's the phrase, uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Well, it's probably his fault that the city caught on fire and a huge portion of it burned. But he shifted the attention and he said, it's the Christians that did that. And that results in persecution for the Christians. And eventually the Christians are all going to be, uh, in 65, they're going to be kicked out of, uh, out of Rome. Um, and many believe that both Peter and Paul were martyred during that time. It's po certainly possible that that is true. At the same time, back in Judea, a Jewish revolt against Rome is, is uh, brewing that will result in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. In light of the persecution in both Rome and Judea, the church certainly needed the truth and challenge found in Mark's gospel. They're going through tough times. In Rome, they're being persecuted. Back in Judea, Christians are being persecuted. Uh, because of that persecution, Mark, one of the things he's doing is he's framing his gospel to say, why are we suffering? And he's going to say, because Jesus suffered. This person that we're following, he suffered as well. Where were he and his readers? This is, there's good evidence that Mark wrote to mostly Gentile Christians living in Rome. In all likelihood, he lived there too. 
Mark explains these Palestinian customs. Some of the retained Aramaic expressions are translated into Greek, and there are many Latin expressions in Mark. It really seems like he's, he's writing from Rome to Christians in Rome, but he kind of knows I'm preserving this as a result of what Peter has told me so we can be passed along to generations to come. In addition, Mark 15, 21, near the end of the book, mentions this man named Rufus as though he were well known to his readers. He, he mentions Rufus. In Romans 16, 13, there's a man named Rufus who lived in Rome. He was greeted by Paul. Mark was probably in the same place as Rufus when he wrote, and since Rufus was in Rome in the late 50s, Mark seemed to be there too. This is further supported by the New Testament references to Mark in Colossians 4, which Paul is writing, and he's sending greetings, and he greets he groups Mark with some people who are in Rome. And in 1 Peter 5.13, which placed him in Rome in the early to mid-60s. So Mark's in Rome at this point. He, he is probably uh, 25, 30 years after the death of Christ. He's gotten reports from Peter, and he is arranging that, but he is arranging it in a way that will help these suffering Christians realize what, um, what it means to really follow Jesus. Scott Duvall says it this way, Mark writes for a target audience of Gentile Christians in and around Rome. Although the message certainly finds a much wider readership soon after it was written. For his Gentile audience, Mark explains Jewish customs, translates Aramaic expressions, even explains Greek expressions using Latin equivalents. Daryl Box says this, in sum, Mark addresses the church under duress, suffering a rejection like that of their teacher. They haven't become popular in the world. They're being rejected, and he's basically saying, look, this is exactly what happened with Jesus. Yet the call to serve, to rest in God's plan, and to look to Jesus as the example provides the antidote for their stressful situation. In a world slow to grasp God's, what God's ways are. When the world's not saying, hey, suffering and serving, following Jesus, giving every uh, bit of your priorities to him, when the world doesn't accept that, um, Mark is the book for you. Scott Duvall says, Mark's main concern is to show that Jesus, the powerful Messiah and Son of God, is also the suffering servant. Um, Matthew presents him as the king. Mark is going to present him as the suffering servant. Mark then connects who Jesus is, the Christology of the book, to what it means to follow him, real discipleship. We learn that following Jesus means going the way of the cross, that the path to glory leads through suffering, not only for the Lord, but also for those who follow him. This is what Mark is doing. <laughs> He's getting reports from Peter. He's arranging them in a way to say, this church that's suffering, that's having a hard time, that's being persecuted, um, we are following in the steps of the suffering servant. And this is the path of obedience, is following in those steps. How is Mark organized? I've got an outline there. It's in your bulletin. But what I want to highlight for you is Mark, more than any of the other Gospels, um, arranges things in this geographical structure. At the very first section, just the first 15 verses, it's repeated again and again. They're in the desert, in the desert, in the desert, in the desert. Then the phrase changes, and they're in Galilee, and Galilee, and Galilee, and Galilee. And it's repeated almost obnoxiously. In the very center section of the book, they're on the way, on the way, on the way, on the way. Then they're in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, and Jerusalem. And then they are in the tomb. Jesus is in the tomb, in the tomb, in the tomb, in the tomb. It starts off in the desert, ends in the tomb, desert tomb. Um, there's ministry in Galilee, ministry in Jerusalem. But the center section is this training of the disciples while they are on the way. 
And Mark is going to present things that way. Another fascinating thing happens in Mark, and it's called sandwiching. There's basically a story will be told, and then a lesson will be given, and then a story that reflects it. His family's going to visit. Um, there's going to be an accusation that he's casting out demons by Beelzebub. And then his family, he's going to identify who his true fam- family is. There's a request made um, by Jairus for him to heal his daughter. Then he's going to go there, but heal a woman on the way, and then he's finally going to heal the daughter. This happens frequently in Mark because Mark is trying to to frame these narrative things that Jesus is doing to give you these lessons again and again. I mentioned that it's a fast-paced, rip-roaring story. Um, There's a, a a Greek word, ethus, which is very difficult to translate, that's used 40 times in the book. Um, the old King James translated it straightway. And straightway he did this. Straightway he did this. Um, the New American Standard tends to translate it immediately. And immediately this happened. And immediately this happened. Um, sometimes it's translated next. Sometimes it's just translated then. Um, the NIV tends to not translate it, to, it, to not even put it in there. But 42 times, it, it's kind of communicating, all right, then we did this, okay, then this, and then this, and then this. It, it, it's moving the story along because he's not wanting to pause. He's, he's wanting to quickly move you through, um, through the story and get you to this climax that he's trying to get to when Jesus arrives at Jerusalem. The other interesting thing that he does is he translates Um, in what's called a historical present. What he's doing is he's not putting it in the past tense. He's putting it in the present tense so that you feel like you're there. You're being invited into the story, okay? So this isn't something you look at and go, oh yes, there's this teaching of Jesus. There's his ministry. Um, It's it's this story that you're supposed to engage in and connect in. Um, And he uses characters in a really vivid way. Mark, more than any other gospel, can be read as a story, and and all of the elements are really good. I'm going to talk about the disciples as the point of identification in just a minute. Um, How he develops the disciples, just overview real quick, is he develops the disciples by by presenting them very positively at the very beginning. Um, They follow, and you just kind of, yeah, that's me, I'm a disciple, but then they struggle, okay? And, and it's almost like he's caught you. Yes, you're like the disciples. You want to follow, but you struggle. And he invites you into that struggle to be honest about it. Uh, the demons are, as I said, co- kind of comic relief through the book. They, they keep popping up at the wrong time and declaring something, and Jesus has to shut them up. Um, the Jewish leaders are in opposition to him, even his family. <laughs> this, is, this is the gospel where his family comes and says, hey, can we talk to him? We think he's kind of lost his mind. We're taking him home. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to subvert the message. And, and Jesus is this secret hero. Um, he emerges as the Messiah. Uh, the, and the question is, what kind of Messiah will he be? Will he be a conquering Messiah? Answer, no. He will be a suffering Messiah. He will be a servant Messiah. And that's who they have to follow. The role of the disciples is really highlighted. They, they follow quickly, and that, that's kind of this. He calls them, and they drop their nets, and they follow him. Um, and, and that's positive for us. Um, it appears to be a good decision because immediately there's popularity, and the crowds are, are growing. So 
They follow him. The crowds are growing. It's like, yes, we're with the right guy. But then they soon question the decision because opposition starts to intensify and they're confused by it. Right in the center of the book, there's a confirmation. Um, he, he, he appoints the 12, his family arrives, and then he stops and he goes, who's really my family? It's you guys who are following me. So it, it's almost as if they go, okay, yeah, we're going to follow him. Uh, this is a good decision. This is a bad decision. Okay, it's the right decision because now we're part of the family. Peter's confession that Jesus is Messiah is the centerpiece of the book. It's right in the center of the book. It's the climax of part one. Once you realize he's the Messiah, then the question in the last part of the book is this, what kind of Messiah is he? Who, who is this Messiah? What kind of Messiah is he going to be? How should we follow him is really set forth in the book. I'm going to give you one scene that really shows you that. And at the end of the book, we're left with, um, Jesus is not in the tomb. What are you going to do with that? That's really how it, there's fear and trembling. The last word of the book is, is trembling. They get the report and, and they're trembling. How are you going to follow a savior who's not what you really expected? He's not conquering. He's died, but he's resurrected. How do you follow him? That's how the book works. Um, in the chart I have out the Connection Center, there's a, a section there that highlights all of these keys to understanding Mark, mostly reading it as a good story. Um, I, I've highlighted the center section there uh, where uh, Peter makes his confession. Um, he, he confesses that, that he is the Christ. Um, then there is um, this really interesting breakdown there are eight chapters that cover three and a half years, and then eight chapters that cover seven days. That, that really shows where Mark is going here. In, in, eight, in eight chapters, he's going to have to quickly, immediately, moving on, okay, straight way, get you through this ministry of Jesus until he gets to Jerusalem, because that's where the real work happens. That's where he really lays down his life and, and sacrifices and redeems us. Um, I've already highlighted this idea that it geographically moves through from in the desert to in the tomb. And in the middle, there's this on the way where he's training them to say, how do you follow me? Um, he begins with the private, um, the, the public ministry of Jesus in Galilee. Um, then he's going to talk about um, his private teaching of the disciples along the way. And then he's going to get to his redemptive ministry in Jerusalem. This is how the book, the book flows through here. Um, and, and he ends with a really short cha chapter. There's, there's a longer ending of Mark. Don't worry about that. There's a longer ending of Mark that I think is, is perhaps accurate, but it's not how Mark wanted to end it. Um, the, the scribes who are putting the books together are kind of troubled by the fact that there's no resurrection appearances in Mark. And so they get some resurrection appearances and a, attach it to it. But the earliest best manuscripts of Mark end with that, he's, he's not in the tomb, the women find the tomb empty, and they tell the disciples, and they're, they're trembling. And I think that's how the gospel is really supposed to end, with this cliffhanger ending, now what are you going to do? So, now our question, what's the message? Here's, here's my summary of this on the chart. Mark, in rapid succession, set forth a record of the life of Christ in close connection to his disciples, tracking these disciples and how they followed him, highlighting their struggle to understand 
who he was and the nature of his messianic ministry, climaxing with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in order to confirm the reader's faith and show the demands of following him as a servant leader. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, look, he came to redeem. He didn't come to conquer. He suffered. He served. And that's who you're following. And, and you need to proclaim this message and be ready to suffer and serve like he did. Um, the gospel starts this way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. This is good news. This is where we get our, our, our uh, word for the gospel. It, it is good news that we're going to see in this book. Um, and what he's going to do is he's going to highlight that he's Messiah and that he's the Son of God. And he says this is the beginning of it. It's, it's almost as if he's saying this is the origin of this message that we're now taking around the world and we're suffering for it. We're, we're, we're having to work hard to get this message around the world. And this is where this good news message started. And the message is that he's Messiah and he's the Son of God. This idea that he's Messiah, we're going to get back to when Peter answers in the middle of the book, highlighted, you're the Messiah. You're, you're, the, you're the Son of God. Um, you're, you're the Messiah. At the end of the book, we're going to see this centurion who's going to announce, you are the Son of God. So where he starts, the good news, um, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, he's going to climax with Messiah in the middle of the book, and he's going to kind of get to another high point at the end of the book where he's going to say he is the Son of God. Um, some of these things we've already talked about. Scripture has been read today already in the, in the service. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples went, um, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Peter finally gets it. Here, halfway through the book, Peter finally gets it. And then he says, don't tell anybody, because it wasn't his time yet. And Jesus is very clearly um, orchestrating the timing of this event so that he will eventually be crucified on the day of Passover. But if the news got out and they started announcing it in a diff earlier, um, then it, it would have probably led to the opposition uh, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it would have happened too quickly. So he says, we've got to keep this quiet. He's got to manage the time frame working through that. But this is this climactic declaration uh, for him. Uh, in, in the next chapter, he's going to go up on a mountain, and he's going to uh, be transfigured before them. He's going to be seen in his, all of his glory. This is repeated in a number of the Gospels. Um, he's there with Moses and Elijah, um, basically the, the, the first prophet, and then the, the second prophet of the, of the kingdom is almost as if it's saying everything Moses and, and Elijah, all the prophets, everything they said is fulfilled with this guy. That's, that's what's happening there on the Mount of Transfiguration. To bring you into the struggle, um, I'm, I'm going to talk about a passage that I've talked about numerous times in church before, Mark chapter 11. Um, this is called the triumphal entry. Um, it is... It is when they finally are arriving at Jerusalem. As they approached Jerusalem, he came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, 
And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. That's a bizarre request, by the way. Go steal a donkey for me. Okay, that's basically, go get a donkey. I don't own it. You're going to find, there's one you're going to find. I want you to go get it. I want you to bring it back. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied to a doorway. It's almost as if it's going, okay, we're going to take this step of obedience. We're going to go get this thing. Hopefully they won't get in trouble. (laughs) We're going to get it. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? I don't know how you hear the tone of that sentence, but I don't hear it as, oh, what are you doing untying that colt? Does the Lord need it? No, they're probably going, you're stealing my dog, you know, quit it. What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them. I don't, I don't know how you hear that either, but I, I hear it as kind of a, uh, Jesus needs it? And they said, okay, that's fine. And I think at that point, they're just like, gosh, we just do what he says and it all works out. Yeah. When they brought the colt to Jesus, uh, they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Um, man, this is a great scene here. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut down in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, save us now is what that means. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Man, the crowds are on their side. They're entering Jerusalem and this is a ticker tape parade. They just won the Super Bowl. I mean, this is the crowds are there. This is the celebration party. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. That's bizarre. All the crowds are there. They're supporting him. If there's ever a time to strike while the iron is hot, this is it. But what he does is he goes into the temple, he looks around, and then he goes back out to Bethany. And I believe the disciples are going, uh, okay, we're doing what you said. The crowds are on our side. And I guess we're just going to follow you back out to Bethany. Why are we doing this? I really believe the reason is this. Following Jesus is following a person, not following a plan. This plan doesn't make sense. Steal people's property when they're showing you a ticker tape parade, just go back home that night. Following Jesus is not following a plan, it's following a person. That's, I think, the big lesson of this book. Dan Wallace says it this way, although Mark is ostensibly interested in the um, teaching of Jesus, he's most concerned with Jesus' actions. The lack of a genealogy, the lack of much teaching material, coupled with the frequent use of immediately, has been seen as sufficient indicators that Mark Gospel presents Jesus preeminently as the servant. We might modify that slightly. The heart of the Gospel can be seen in 8, 27 to 33, when Peter wants to affirm that Jesus is Christ without the necessity of the cross. Peter's going, you are the Messiah. Let's set up your kingdom right now. In his stern rebuke of Peter, the servant attitude of Jesus is thus seen to be intrinsically related to his own suffering. The verse which capsulizes this is 1045. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is portrayed then as the suffering servant. 
Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came, he didn't came to be served, he came to serve. And that's who we follow. So where does all this fit? Mark is the shortest gospel, full of action, focusing more on Jesus' ministry than his teaching. He's a cousin of Peter, got eyewitness reports from him. He was a follower of Jesus himself. He may even be the young man in the Garden of Gethsemane who escapes with, when they take his cloak away. This is the most story-like of all the Gospels, with character development, plot, tension, even a cliffhanger ending. This is a great story, folks. <laughs> but it's supposed to capture us and bring us in. Mark Strauss says, from our examination of the Gospels' narrative progression and theological themes, when we suggest we may suggest a threefold narrative purpose to confirm that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah and son of God, the inaugurator of God's kingdom and the fulfillment of Israel's promises. The second purpose to show that he fulfills these promises in a surprising way, not through conquest, but through servanthood and suffering. And on the basis of this revelation to call believers to follow in the suffering path of their Messiah and Lord, the path to glory is through suffering and sacrifice. Um, the path to glory is through suffering and sacrifice. That's not a popular message today. So what should we believe? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited Savior promised in the Old Testament. Mark is once again saying he's the fulfillment of all of this. Following Jesus is often a confusing struggle, but it's worth it. He highlights the struggle of the disciples. Jesus' obedience least suffering to f suffers to fulfill his calling, we should expect nothing less for ourselves. Mark Strauss again, Jesus, the mighty Messiah and son of God, obediently suffers as the servant of the Lord to pay the ransom price for sins and is a model of suffering and sacrifice for his disciples to follow. So how should we behave? Follow Jesus in spite of opposition. There's a lot of it in this book. Follow Jesus anyways. Follow Jesus when it's not popular. Follow Jesus when you're confused. You don't know why he's doing what he's doing. He's not obligated to explain it to you. He's not obligated to explain why he's going back out to Bethany. He's not obligated to explain why you're going through what you're going through and somebody else is not. And follow him in spite of fear. That's how the book ends. They're fearful. But they still follow. So here's some next steps for this book. <laughs> Embrace the life of following Jesus in spite of confusion, fear, and suffering. Be thankful that Jesus is patient with us and understands the struggle we have following him. I think this book really presents that. Jesus is patient with us. The disciples struggled to figure it out. They were confused. They were oblivious. And as we remember what Christ did for us this, this morning, I, I want you to take that last point and take it to heart. Um, as you come forward to take these elements, and here, here's what I'm going to ask you to do is, is, if you're in these two sections, come here to this section um, and just come to the section in front of you. If you're in that section, come to that section. Um, if you're here, come here. And if you're here, come here. If you're here, here, over here. Come get the elements, okay? As you're making your way down to the elements, I want you to remember Christ is patient with you. He understands it's difficult to figure out what he's up to in our lives. He's patient with us, but he never gives up. And he came to seek, to serve, and to save you. Even with your struggles, your confusions, 
and your fears.